All right, we're in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be covering verses 29 through 32 tonight. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. Paul goes on and says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, as we continue on in our study of this passage, keep in mind that this is all in the context of putting away all falsehood. If you were with us last week, we, you know how we looked at the, the beginning of this whole section. Paul was saying putting away all falsehood, and we spent some time taking a look at that. That's going to be the, kind of the context of what we're going to be looking at tonight. But I love, look at verse 29. Look closely at how Paul, through the Holy Spirit, of course, words this instruction. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for the building up as fits the occasion. Look closely at how he words it. He says, don't let any corrupting talk come out. Doesn't it sound like he's saying we have control? We do. Because of Christ in you, you now have within you the, the ability to control whether or not the flesh wins or whether or not the spirit, which is within you now, the new creation that you are, is in control. And that's why in Romans chapter 6, he says, don't let sin reign, therefore, in your mortal bodies. So we're going to look at tonight, as we've already kind of touched on a little bit, I want to remind you some more, in the putting off of the old man and putting on the new, you choose whom you're going to obey. You want to go back to Romans chapter 6, you can take a look at that, where Paul says, you choose whom you're going to obey, whether or not it's the flesh or whether or not it's the spirit. You choose whether or not the flesh is going to be in control, and you choose whether or not the spirit's going to be in control. And so that's why, as he's talking about how our speech should be, he says, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now, doesn't that also kind of give you a little picture of the fact that sometimes it's going to come to our mind? I mean, let's be honest, folks. <laughs> There's a big difference between it coming out of your mouth and for it coming to your mind. Being tempted is not a sin. If it were, Jesus isn't sinless. The Bible says he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. There are going to be things that come to your mind. There are going to be thoughts that come to your mind. But you need to, as you practice this, Allowing Christ to have control, you need to learn how to let the Spirit of God rule in those situations. Well, let, let me take you there. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Put a bookmark here in Ephesians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verses 3 through 5. And everything we're going to be looking at tonight, by the way, is all heading to a wonderful conclusion. I cannot wait to get to what we're going to look at at the end. So understand that all we're looking at here is a, is, is a buildup, a setup for where we're going to end up tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And look what he says here. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you see what's going on here? You can't say anymore, well, I'm only human. You know, I couldn't help myself. I just lost my cool. You know, I, I probably shouldn't have said that. But, you know, sometimes you, you just can't, you can't go there if you're in Christ. There is a difference now that you have. We walk around in the flesh. Yes, we still have bodies and we're still struggling against sin in that sense. But we don't wage warfare as the flesh does. Now, I'm going to just take a quick little aside and say, keep that in mind. 
in your churches, as you try to deal with certain situations, you'd be amazed if you're willing to take a step back at how much in our churches today we try to deal with situations that arise. We try to deal with it in the flesh instead of allowing the spirit of God to bring victory and to bring the change in the hearts of the people. We just make up our rules and our policies and our manuals. And we just we just we look at how man would do it instead of letting the spirit of God have control. And so we actually, without realizing it, are making our statement about how powerful we really think God is when we just kind of look at things and do things through the flesh. But here he says, we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Now, in order to live this type of a life, in order to be a person who's putting off the old man and putting on the new, and as you remember, it's being renewed in the spirit of our mind. That's a daily process. But I promise you, as you practice it, you will become better and better at it. But in order to be this kind of person, you're going to have to talk less. You're going to have to talk less and listen more. And you're going to be someone that's going to measure your words. By the way, those of you who have been around for a while and you know men and women of faith, and especially those godly men and women over the years that you've known, that you would say, well, I want to know what that person has to say because that person walks with the Lord. And that person, whenever they speak, you know what I'm saying, right? Something valuable comes out. They don't talk a whole lot. But when they do, everybody in the room stops because, oh, so-and-so's talking. They'll have something to say. And that's something that, as much as I love to talk, I actually have been allowing the Spirit of God to have control of in my life. Yes, you guys hear me talk a lot because in these venues, this is what I've been called to do and gifted to do. But I don't know, those that have hung around me for a while, you might have begun to notice over the last so many years, I'm actually, yeah, I know it's hard to notice, but I'm actually <laughs> talking less. Because I'm practicing these same things, folks. Because I, I don't want to be someone, that, oh, Jim's talking again. I, that's the last thing I want. Is that people think, oh, Jim's talking again. I want it that when I talk, people think that they're about to hear from God. Now, in order to do so, you've got to be quiet more and learn how to take every thought captive. And as Paul gives these instructions in Ephesians, you're going to be dealing with, okay, is this, what I'm about to say going to build up? Is it going to give grace? Is it fitting to the occasion? Or are you just, as they used to say, wanting to hear your gums flap, you know, kind of a thing. You control whether or not the flesh will be in control or whether or not the spirit will be in control. Corrupting talk. Well, let's just turn that into words, any kind of words that do damage. Let me just list a few of those that I've seen over the years. I know of a man that came to me one time and he was very, very bothered by the fact that a buddy of his from church told him this joke. They were two guys, you know, and they were out, you know, sitting around a fire. And this other guy goes, yeah, I know it's not the greatest joke, but it's really funny. And this guy that came to me and said, you know what? This buddy of mine from church told me this joke and it's kind of dirty and I can't get that picture out of my mind. The guy didn't realize that he had actually used corrupting talk by telling this joke that had now stuck in this other man's mind and he couldn't get it out. Oh, there's other things that are like that. Slander, gossip. I don't know if you ever noticed it or not, but in the story in Matthew chapter 1 and the account of Joseph finding out that Mary is pregnant and he knows it isn't him. And Mary, I'm sure, said, I didn't do anything. God put it here. And just put yourself in Joseph's shoes. I mean, your fiance is found to be pregnant and her defense is, I didn't touch anybody. God put this baby in me. Let's be honest, folks. I don't care who you are. You're not believing that one. But look at what the scripture says. But Joseph, being a righteous man, decided to divorce her quietly. Man, he could have just, he could have had her killed. 
He didn't even decide to slander her. And because it definitely couldn't make him look good, because I'm sure there were people probably thinking it was him. There were lots of ways that he could make himself look better by tearing her down. But he didn't. Again, this goes to where we're going. Stick with me. It goes to where we're going. But slander and gossip, that's corrupting talk. Things that actually tear other people down. Well, like I said here in my notes, sometimes we use words to put others down so we can feel better about ourselves. You try to build yourself up by tearing others down. The Bible says we're to be using our words to do what? Look at it says here again, such as good for the uh, building others up. The Bible says when you speak, you're to give grace. That's what it says on here. here. Uh, look at verse, it says there uh, at the end of verse 29, as fits the occasions that it may give grace to the hear, those who hear. Does anybody know what the word grace, the root of the word grace is? Anybody have any idea what the root of the word grace is? It's charis. Does anybody know what charis means? It's a gift. It's a gift. That's why you ever heard the term charismatics having to do with the gifts. The word charis or grace is the root of it. Is a, it's a gift. God's grace is a gift. In other words, we should be in such a way that when we, as we put away falsehood, and we dealt with a lot of that last week, but as we put away falsehood, we're going to be people that when things come out of our mouth toward each other, it actually builds each other up. Now, I wrote here, we need to build up, we need to encourage. I thought, and I started thinking about this, and I thought, you know, Jesus, when, whenever he met somebody, he gave him a new name, didn't he? And the Bible even says in the book of Revelation, we're all, all his children are going to give, be given a new name. What was neat was I watched Jesus as he dealt with people. We see it specifically with Peter as well. He not only gave them a new name, he saw them in that way as he dealt with them. Even though they still look like the old person a lot, he still saw them in the old way. Remember how he said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen the brothers. And of course, Peter says, I, I don't know about the rest of these bums. I'll die for you. I'll go to prison. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter. I tell you, new name, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. He sees what God's going to do. And that's one thing I kind of brought out in my notes here is, is, you see in this passage it says, building up as fits the occasion. Actually, correction and rebuke is words of grace as well. We, we think when we, we're going to build in each up and encourage each other, that all we're going to do is we're supposed to just uh, say nice things, like, you have such a beautiful golf swing, Dave. You know, kind of a thing. But, but, but what I'm getting at is, is, is I'm not talking flattery and praise. Because, you know, you, you've run across people like that. that they're, they just, they so flatter you. They so praise you. You don't even believe it anymore. No, I'm not talking that kind of a thing. But the Bible says that our words are supposed to be encouraging and building up. Sometimes correction when done properly. Remember what we looked at last week? If you're asked a question that's a tough one to answer, if they already know your heart, that you're an honest, gentle, supportive person, when you speak truth, they'll know your heart. Well, go with me to Proverbs chapter 15. And let's take a look at what the scripture says here about words of correction. And actually, Dave does have a beautiful golf swing. He really does. It, he, it doesn't do anything, but he has a beautiful swing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working on this grace thing myself, Dave. Proverbs 15, verses 1 through 7, and then verse 31. Look at what it says. It says, A soft answer turns away wrath, 
but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the heart of fools. Look at verse 31. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Now, let's, let's just take this example of what I just did with Dave with the teasing and everything. See, some people could take this teaching and say, Jim, that means you're not supposed to tease like that. Your words are always supposed to give grace. Now, listen closely to what we're looking at here. The fact that Dave and I can joke like this is because Dave and I have known each other for 25 years. And we've been friends for a long, long time. And <laughs> until today, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, if there's teasing's good if people know your heart, if they know your heart. I had a professor back in, uh, in college years ago when I was at Flagler College who took me to the side one day. And this lady's uh, wisdom is stuck with me. She said, Jim, you're an incredible guy, but you got a weird sense of humor. She said, don't let anybody see your sense of humor until they find out what kind of a guy you are. Because your sense of humor doesn't work unless they know who you are. If they don't know who you are, your sense of humor will not do you any good. And that has stuck with me. It really has. Now, in the same way, look here. Here the scripture says that the, the, our words need to be gentle and life-giving, but also reproof is life-giving. So how do, we, how do we build up and give grace with correction? Well, yes, definitely with the Holy Spirit give us the words when needed, but, but keep going. What are some ways that we can give, give me some examples of, of, of giving grace by giving correction? Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love as we've already seen. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's a part of parenting is right. Anybody else? What are some ways you can give grace with correction? How about just teaching truth as it is? You know, let's be honest. Is everything that I say or I teach you from this word, everything you read on your own, the spirit of God teaches you. Is it all easy? Is it fun sometimes? No, but it's for our best. It's good. You take the time to really walk your way through the book of Proverbs, especially as it starts in Proverbs 1, 2, and so on. It just starts off with saying, my son, my son, don't despise the Lord's correction. You need to seek wisdom. You need to listen. Yeah, the world's saying this, 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 and this, but the truth is here. And sometimes telling people the hard thing in love is actually life-giving and giving grace, as fits the occasion. And oh. it does draw you closer. Yes. Yes. In love. Exactly. Now, we need to emphasize and focus on praising each other, though, more than we do. I'm just going to talk, take a little bit of time on this, because honestly, over the years, I think the church has focused so much on truth that all of a sudden we've lost the aspect of really focusing on seeing people the way God does. You know, there, there was a, a, a struggle over, over time, and, and I, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was this move in Christendom to liberality, and, and, and it's always going to be there. But during the, the, the middle to the late 70s and the 80s, all of a sudden, especially in Southern Baptist circles, there was this move for being fundamental and faithful and accurate to the Scriptures, and thank God for those that were a part of that, that movement. But we got so focused on truth 
we lost sight of the other aspects of the fact of speaking the truth in love. And one of the things that over the years, as God has been moving me from legalism into his grace to really understand it, it's changed me as a parent. It's changed me as a person. Because now, for years, I thought my responsibility as a parent was to always give correction. He's been teaching me, look closely at how I am, God's showing me. When I correct, I do it in such a way that people actually feel, feel built up, not torn down. And it hit me one day, and, and my son's not here. He's out in a basketball game right now. I actually got to watch him play yesterday, and he's got another game tonight. And I literally, in my heart, as I'm sitting there as a dad, watching my son play basketball, and I had the privilege of not only playing, but being pretty good at it and playing in college. And I got a lot of stuff I'd love to teach him. I'd like to help him. He has a body I wish I had at his age. And as I was in the stands yelling out instruction and correction, he didn't hear love. He didn't hear praise. He didn't hear building up. He heard that I wasn't pleased. He heard that I was focusing on the fact that he wasn't good enough. That wasn't my heart at all. My purposes of saying, not so hard off the backboard next time, wasn't because I thought he was doing bad. I was, I was wanting to help. But that's not what he heard. And so God began to teach me, and he's helped us as a parent. It's made a big difference. We have learned in our family to focus on praising our children a, like, a lot so that when we do correct, they already know we love them. And they hear the correction in the same way. And folks, hopefully I've gotten better with you as well. Not just my kids, but coming up and telling, thanking you for, for what a gift you are to me in many different ways. And I would love to right now, but it would take too much time. I would love to walk through and look at all these faces. And I could tell you in each one of you in some way, even in the brief little bit that we've known each other, some of us, I could tell you how God has used you already in my life and the way you're an encouragement to me. Folks, we need to focus on that. And there's a, there's a few people I could list over the years that are like that, but there's a man in our church, his name is Jay Clark. And some of you may not know who he is, but if you've gone US1, you've seen, you've gone underneath his bridge. It's up there just north of Cocoa Beach. There's Jay Clark Bridge. He actually worked for the school board here in Brevard County for a lot of years. He goes to First Merritt Island. And let me just tell you, this man lived this out. Whenever you run into him, he has nothing but good things to say. But it's not just flattery. It's not just praise. He'll give you specifics. Folks, you want to begin to put off the old and put on the new and allow the Spirit of Christ to walk and live through you? Have it start with your words and being someone who praises, who praises, who praises. And when you do correct, you've already built up that account, if you will, that they hear, this person already loves me. This is for my good. And think about how Jesus was. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they felt comfortable in his presence. Did they feel condemned? No. Even the woman caught in the act of adultery. And he says, those of you without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And they all walked away. And he turned to her and he says, where are your accusers? It's just they're gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. She didn't say, oh, you're just a killjoy. All you do is point out my faults. No, she felt his love. There was something about Jesus, who's God, which is continually praising. And he's, when he corrects us, and he does, when he convicts of sin, he does it in a way that actually says, I have better for you. This isn't good for you. 
He's not saying you're no good, you're lowly, you're, you'll never get there. That stuff you hear that you think is God, because Satan loves to pretend he's God. He wishes he was God. And he loves to talk like he's God. But one of the ways you'll know that what's, the voice you're hearing is not God and it's Satan is if it's, making you, if it's tearing you down. Oh, God points out sin, but he does it in a way that builds you up. And he gives grace as fits the occasion. Then Paul goes on and he says something else in the next verse, look at verse 30. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Can anybody tell me the grace that he gives in that verse right there? He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Where's the grace in that? You're sealed. As he's pointing out to you, look, hey, there's a danger here. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And I'll explain what that is in just a second. But in pointing out this instruction saying, don't do these things or don't do this thing, he also reminds them at the same time. Oh, by the way, don't worry, he ain't going to leave you. You've been sealed. And I, I want to remind you of some, some of you of that. Let, let's go real quick. Just back up to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> As you heard in my prayer at the beginning, a place I was preaching this, this, this afternoon, a young man, I don't know how young he is, but everybody's starting to look younger than me now. Uh, he gave his life to the Lord afterwards. He actually came up and, I mean, we didn't give an altar call in the sense that I was standing there and y'all come. I just finished teaching and went over to my table afterwards. And he came and it was obvious as people were standing there talking to me that the Spirit of God was working on him. And he waited and waited. And finally, his name was John. I said, well, what's going on? He goes, well, every time I hear you speak, it just moves me. And I said, well, that's cool. Do you know the Lord? He goes, that's my problem. I go, what do you mean? He said, I know I should, but I said, what's keeping you from? He goes, well, you know, that kind of stuff. And I said, look, let me just tell you, there's going to have to come a point where you make that final decision. God's been drawing you, but you have to take that final step. Mark was there at this time. And Mark even told him because he came with Mark on the bus and he said, look, you've noticed I've never asked you to give your life to Jesus Christ or get you to pray a prayer. Because that's going to be something that you deal with on your own, not because someone talked you into it. So we just left him with, hey, when you know it's time, you better take that step. We hadn't finished saying those words. He said, today's the day. Can we do it right now? <laughs> and after he trusted Christ as his Savior, we sat down with him and I took him right to this passage. Look what it says in verses 13 and 14. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Let's look closely at what this says here. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Folks, there's lots of people out there that try to tell you you can lose your salvation. That's one of the most provable doctrines in Scripture that you can't. The issue is, did you receive the spirit of God? 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? If Christ is in you, God has sealed you as his, and he's holding on to your salvation. It's God who makes us stand firm in Christ. Well, what about those who this, that, and the other, and then they walked away? Listen, the scripture says, if they receive the Spirit, they won't. The question is whether or not you receive the Spirit, but if you did... You were sealed. What did Paul say back here in Ephesians chapter 4? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were what? Sealed for the, for the day of redemption. Go to John chapter 14. Look at what Jesus says here. John chapter 14. It's real easy to remember. It's John chapter 14 verses 15 and 16. So John 14, 15 and 16. This should be a place that you should lock into your brain to help you remember one of these places. Look at what Jesus says. 
He says, if you love me, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you when? Forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because of the season, another season and knows him. And then he goes, you'll know him because he'll be in you. Again, if you believe, if obey his commands. And by the way, in the context here, the commandment was simply this, believing that he was who he was. Amen. That's it. You believe in what I've commanded. You believe in what I've been preaching, what I've been teaching. My father will give you the Holy Spirit and he'll be with you forever. All right. Now, so John, sorry, Paul is taking the time now to remind them as he's giving them instruction. He gives grace at the same time that he's instructing and correcting. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed. So don't think that as I deal with this grieving of the Spirit that, oh, no, maybe he's left me. I hear too many Christians saying, well, I pray David's prayer where David prayed in Psalm 50, uh, 51. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I was like, whoa, David prayed that prayer because back at that time, the Holy Spirit would come upon people and then he would leave because of disobedience, like in Saul's situation. And David wasn't indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon him in power. And David rightly prayed, Lord, I don't want to be like Saul. I don't want you to take your Holy Spirit from me. But that's not a prayer for Christians, folks. He won't take his Holy Spirit from you. He's promised you rivers of living water. He promised that his grace would be continually flowing toward you. You know how I can prove it to you? When you were a sinner, when you were separated from God because of your sin, did God offer you grace? Did he offer you his Holy Spirit? Yes, he's offering it to you. When you were a sinner, when you were apart from Christ, God in love pursued you by his spirit. He drew you by his spirit. He offered you eternal life. He was offering you his grace, his spirit. When you were a sinner, what is how Paul put it in Romans chapter 5? If we were his enemies... God did this for us. How much more now having been reconciled will receive, will receive his life? Folks, in the same way, too many of us have been taught that God offers his grace to the sinner. But once we get saved, when we sin, he withholds his grace. That's not what the Bible teaches. Grieving the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that God's going to withhold his grace in the sense that he's now going to keep the Holy Spirit from you. No, he's forever offering it to you. But what it is, is when we grieve the Holy Spirit, we are the ones who push him away. I don't know about you, but I can show you from Scripture that saddens the Holy Spirit. It grieves. That word grieve, you'll find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse 13 and you see a picture of this word grieve. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13. As he's talking about the rapture, he says in verse 13, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or those who have died and gone to be with the Lord, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. How many times have you heard a preacher use this verse as you're standing by a graveside or whatever? And he says, look, we grieve. We're saddened. We're sorrowful. But it's not like those who have no hope. But there's a grief. There's a sadness. And this word grief is a picture of a sorrow with the spirit of God that dwells within you. The Bible says he's a jealous God. He, 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 he wants to be in control, but he has chosen to let us choose whom we're going to obey, whether or not the flesh is going to win, whether or not he's going to be allowed to have control. And when we choose to walk in the flesh and not in the spirit, not just in deliberate sinning like adultery or luster and these types of things, but also in the sense of when God says, I want to take this situation and I want to fix it. But you think, well, I, you know, I got to pull up myself by my bootstraps. I, you know, God expects some of those to help those, you know, helps, helps those who help themselves. And 
you grieve the Holy Spirit when you don't let him do what he wants to do. Go with me to another place. Go to Luke chapter 19. You'll see this grief, this sorrow really, really clearly. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. By the way, a lot of people don't realize that what I'm about to read to you happened at the very end of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. He's riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. People are all welcoming him and praising him. And as he gets to the end of his trip on the donkey, this is what happens. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near... And saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Oh, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus said, Jerusalem... How do you word it in Matthew 23? He words it this way. Oh, if you'd only let me, I would have, as a mother hen gathers her chicks, I would have taken you under my wing, but you weren't willing. The Bible says that Jesus was so grieved, he wept over the city and said, if only you had known what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. We say, wait a minute, Jim. Uh, and now it's hidden from their eyes? Yes, listen closely to what I'm about to share with you. In their situation, he offered them salvation and they rejected it. Because of that, there was a hardening of the nation of Israel in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And as you know, uh, the temple was destroyed. Not one stone was left upon another and all that has gone on for all those time periods. But there's also a picture in there for us. Listen closely to what I'm about to share with you. Yes, as followers in Christ, he won't leave us and say, well, no, it's too late. Now I'm walking away. He'll never do it, leave you nor forsake you. He'll never walk away in that sense. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But listen closely. Because of the fact that God is continually saying, I want to, would you let me, would you trust me, would you just do what I ask you to do? And we many, many times say, no, I'll take care of it myself. We miss out too on a lot that God wants to do. I have over the years, uh, because I knew God called me to preach when I was young, he called me when I was 13. I finally surrendered when I was 19. But around that time of 19, since I was 19, coming up on uh, 30 years now, I literally went and sought older ministers and sat down with them and said, teach me some things. If you had to do it all over again, what would you do different? And 98, 99% of the pastors all said the same thing. If I had to do it over, I would have spent more time with my family. But one pastor, and you've heard of him, I had the privilege of spending uh, a whole day with Adrian Rogers three weeks before he died. And as I sat down with him and he and I got to just sit and we talked, I asked him the same question. I said, Adrian, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do different? And his answer surprised me. He said, Jim, if I had to do it all over again, I would have believed God for more. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'm not talking money and buildings and that kind of stuff. He said, I've lived an amazing, blessed life. I've seen God do amazing things through the ministry he's called me to. But I've come to realize at this stage of my life how much more God wanted to do, but I didn't trust him. If I had to do it over, I would have believed God for more. And to hear Adrian Rogers, of all people, say that got my attention. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three, verses 10 through 15. In this teaching that Paul's been doing on how some plant and others water, he says this in verse 10 of chapter three of first Corinthians, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skillful master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. 
For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. Listen closely to this next verse here, verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Again, look at what Paul's saying. Folks, when we as Christians stand before the judgment seat, if the foundation of Christ has been laid, remember, if you're in Christ, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, you are going to heaven. It's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. If God can't keep a guarantee, nobody can. But he says, after that foundation has been laid, we have to be real careful now how we build on that foundation because God's got a life for each of us that he wants us to live. And one day at the judgment seat of Christ, everything that we have done after salvation will be measured and will be judged. If what you have built survives, you'll be rewarded for eternity. If you, what you've built gets burned up. I don't know how it plays out, folks, but the scripture says you will suffer loss. You will miss out for eternity on whatever that reward is going to be. Not heaven. You're going to be in heaven. You're already guaranteed that. But now listen closely. This is important. Well, then the next question would be is, well, how do I know what's going to last and what's not going to last? Here's the answer to that question. Anything that God did through you by his power, by his grace, you'll be rewarded for. Anything you did in your own strength, even if it looked good, even if it looked religious, even if they held a banquet for you at church because of your commitment and your faithfulness, if it was you and not God, you will not be rewarded for it. Because in Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, in the King James, it's put this way. No flesh will glory in my presence, God says. In other words, Anything we do in our own strength, God will never reward you for. But how many of us have been taught to work for Jesus and maybe it'll count for something? Folks, let me just tell you, take it from the guy who's worked the hardest for the longest time in ministry. A lot of what I did that people patted me on the back for wasn't God doing it through me. It was Jim working hard to try to be the best Christian I could be. And it wasn't until he began to show me, Jim, you're working in the flesh and you'll get no reward. Let me do what I want. But Lord, I have all these expectations. I have all these people who have written my job description. I got all these people and I'm trying to make them all happy. He says, you go ahead and do that. But when you stand before me, you'll only be rewarded for what I did. And I'm only going to do what I want to do through you and what you'll let me and what my plan is for you. And it's no accident. We name the ministry just to preach your ministries. Because this is the life that God's called me to. I, I was preaching Sunday at a church in Titusville, and, and they're without a pastor right now. And the people lined up to say, would you please put your name in? And I look at them and say, mm -mm. why? Because as much as that's what man would love me to be doing, that's not what God has for me to do. And I'm going to live the life God has for me. And I'll tell you, you've heard me share this before, but I'll remind you of it real quickly. I used to hate that verse in Revelation where it said we'd take our crowns off and lay them at his feet. Because I knew my salvation was a gift, but I had been working so hard in my own strength to earn those crowns. Because I knew that's the reward for faithfulness. 
And the picture of me taking it off and laying it and giving it back to Jesus, I got to be honest with you, I didn't like that idea because I worked hard for that. But now I come to realize anything that I'll be rewarded for, I didn't do. I got no problem taking that off when the time comes and says, Jesus, this, <laughs> this is yours. I didn't do it because I've learned. I'm now living for what he has in mind. So, folks, will you miss out if you walk in disobedience? Yes, you won't lose your salvation, but you will suffer loss. And that's why you've heard me say to you over and over, live the life that God has for you. Find out what it is he's telling you. Walk in line with his word and his spirit's leadership according to your gifting. Don't let the nominating committee or a, or a powerful preacher tell you how it is you're supposed to be serving God or what it is you're supposed to be doing. You be whom God calls you to be. And whether it's a five or a two or a one, don't worry about it. You just do it and God will reward you and he'll say, well done. And you'll be amazed at how much he blesses you because of him being able to glorify himself through you. All that, by the way, is in don't grieve the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He's saddened when he wants to be in control, not just in the area of sin, but in the area of sin where God wants to do things through us and we don't let him. Well, God really put it on my heart to give that to so-and-so, but I don't know how he's going to pay my bill. We grieve the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I just, I knew God was really wanting me to do that, but I just didn't see how it was going to work. You grieve the Holy Spirit. What does it say in the book of James? Him who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. In verse 31, though, look at verse 31 of Ephesians 4. Paul reiterates the danger of letting bitterness and anger build up since they result in slander and malice. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, he says this. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then he goes on and says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the part where I've been looking forward to taking you tonight. We're going to take the time we have left tonight to really kind of go deep here. Because this is a very familiar passage and it flows for us. And a lot of us will read it and we'll think, okay, good. Let me move on. Folks, there is such a depth here that I don't want us to miss it. All right. We're not going to take a whole lot of time. We spent last, a chunk of last week's study on, on the, the slander and the malice and those types of things. We already dealt with that. But let me just say this to you real quick. Pretending you're not angry when you are is not putting away falsehood. I'm not saying this to be funny. I'm just saying it straight up, ladies, when something is wrong and your husband asks you what's wrong and you say nothing, that's not putting away all falsehood. Let me just tell you something about us guys. We know something's wrong. We don't know what it is. Well, if you love me, you'd know what it was. I'm sorry, we don't. We still don't. Help us. You know, last week I gave you some kind of principles when it comes to dealing with these types of issues. I'm going to give you three more tonight. Trust me, take this down. This is help. Remember last week we looked at the fact of when you're having an issue with your spouse, nobody can run away. But you need some time apart so that you don't sin in your anger. And set a time for when you're going to come back together. You remember that? Tonight I want to give you some more that God has taught us over the years. And, 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 and I already talked with Becky. She would say, tell them, tell them. And actually, I share this when I do premarital counseling and, and, and other marital counseling. And by the way, I'm not a counselor, so don't line, up, don't line up for that. But I'm going to give you three quick principles 
to help in stressful conversations. When you're sharing an issue with your spouse, male or female, don't start the sentence with the word you. You see, when you start a sentence with the word you, you've actually started an attack. And your issue is reconciliation, not trying to win the battle. So we've learned over the years, you can't start the sentence with the word you. Here's the next thing. You can't use the word never or always. Because it's never, never, and it's never always. But don't we have a tendency to say, well, you're always this, so you're never this. And, you know, I know when Becky and I would have these issues, one of her love languages is quality time. And, and she would say, you're never home. Well, immediately, my brain says, oh, yeah? What about Thursday night? I was there. And we all of a sudden getting off the issue. Here's the third part. First part is this. Don't start with the word you. Second part is don't use the words always and never. And the third part is the most important. Share how you feel or share how what the situation going on, how it makes you feel. Because you know what, folks? That's the real issue. If my wife feels like I'm neglecting her, that's a different issue. Do you understand what I'm saying? I might think I'm the best husband in the world or the best father. But if my wife and kids don't feel that way, I got a problem. So when you have an issue, you don't go on the attack and say, you're never home. You're always ignoring me. Oh. Well, now I'm going to defend myself and we're going to get off into an issue that we don't need to deal with. But if she says, I feel like you're neglecting me. I feel like I'm less important than this other stuff. Well, guess what? That's a serious problem because if my wife's feeling like she's not as important, I don't want that. I should never say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. <laughs> because you started with the word you. Now we have to deal with the issue. Well, I don't want you to feel that way. Well, I do. How can we work on this? Do you understand what I'm saying? This is words that actually build up. When we talk about let your speech be building up and giving grace, don't be like always oh, say, oh, yes, everything's wonderful. You're also nice. It's also No, there are going to be times we have to speak truth. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny you know me. Did you catch the grace in there? I tell you, Peter, that's the grace part. Hey, you gonna be all right? I see the finished product. Yeah, you, you, you need some correction and instruction right now, but you're gonna be all right. We're gonna be fine. We're gonna walk through this, but we gotta talk about this issue. And so when Paul then sums up this in verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ or sorry, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, this is really deep and I, I'm hoping that you haven't checked out yet. I know your mind can only absorb what your butt can endure. But I mean, we're at that point right now where if there's anything I don't want you to miss. It's right now. This is way deeper than, well, I guess since Christ forgave me, I ought to forgive you. This is that's not what he's saying. He's talking about putting away all falsehood and, 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 and being someone who can be tenderhearted and loving and generous and graceful in your words. You're not angry. You have no desire to gossip and slander. You're not going to explode. You're cool. And you can just pour the love of God out. Why? Here's why. Have we really grasped and received God's love and forgiveness toward us and our total undeservedness? This is where we're going here. Because, and I'm going to share with you a passage of scripture that, that, that once you understand the heart of it is cool, but when you read it at first, it looks scary. But 
to really live this out, folks, you can't sit home and make your set of rules and I'm going to try real hard to be like this. You've got to let the truth of what God has done for you really, really take root. You see, it's how I wrote it in my notes, and I just want to read it to you. If we truly understand and receive God's grace to us in all its forms, then we will be so confident in His love and provision for us that we will be at peace even if others do us wrong. We won't be easily offended, nor will we feel a need for bitterness or revenge. We'll be at peace because God is with us. We'll be able to forgive and love others because we'll see each other as He does and we'll love, His love will be flowing through us. And I want to walk you through real quick some scriptures that illustrate this wonderfully. Go to Acts chapter 7. We're going to look at quite a few here, five or six passages. So get your fingers loose because we're going to hit them fast. But I want you to see in the context of all these situations, people who were under attack, people who were being neglected, and they had a right to be despairing or angry or wanting vengeance, but they were so confident in their relationship with God and they had so received His love, they were just pouring out the grace of God in return. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Here's where Stephen is being stoned. It says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit. Remember, whenever we see the words full of the Holy Spirit, what have I taught you to change that into? Under the control of. Very good. Under the control of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, under the control of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus received my spirit and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Did you catch that? He cried out, Lord. Well, doesn't that sound like Jesus on the cross? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. For the sake of time, I'll have you write this down. We're not going to turn there. But in, in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, in Genesis 50, 15 through 21, Joseph, as you know, has been abused by his brothers and beat up and thrown into a hole. And then they sold him into slavery. And all this stuff had happened to him. And where most people normally would have been seething over the years, plotting their revenge. We even got TV shows that that's the name of it. Revenge. Betrayal. Instead of planning his revenge, he so trusted in God that he believed God was in control of every situation. And even when he was in the dungeon and a guy comes and says, I had these weird dreams. And he says, hey, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dream. But you, has anybody ever thought about what had gone on in Joseph's life at that moment? You see, early on when he was a young boy, God gave him a dream. Had a couple. And in his dreams, he saw his brothers and his father and his mother bowing down to him and he went and told his family what his dreams were, and they didn't like the dreams. They knew what they meant, but they didn't like it, and they, all this stuff happened to them. And after all this, you and I probably would have sat there when someone came into us in the dungeon and said, hey, I had this dream. Do you think you could tell me what it means? We would have said, look, ask somebody else. You know, I had a dream years back, and I thought, sure, I knew what it meant. Even my family thought they understood it, but it never happened. 
God's let me down. You want encouragement? You go see somebody else. I'm the last person to give you encouragement right now. Don't talk to me about God and his dreams and his plans for you. But Joseph doesn't act like that. Because his view of God is so secure and so solid. He says, hey, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dream. And as you know, he does come into power. And what God had shown him when he was young actually came to fulfillment. And not only did all these people come, but his brothers and his family came and bowed down to him. And then his dad dies. And his brothers start whispering amongst each other saying, the only reason Joseph hadn't used his power as second in command under Pharaoh is because of dad. But now that he's dead, he's going to kill us. And they went to him and they begged him, please, please. And if you go back and you read what happened, Joseph says this to him. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Folks, let me just tell you something. Take your eyes off a of man. Ephesians, we'll get there in a little bit. Ephesians chapter 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Well, you don't know what someone did to me. It doesn't matter. Is your God big enough? Has he got a plan? Is he trying to do something in your life through this? Is he using it to shape you? Take your eyes off of that person and put them back on God and you will receive this peace that comes that you can't even explain and you'll be able to forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Oh, it gets deeper. Go to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Listen to what Jesus says here. I love how there's just a little sentence in the middle of a whole different context. But look at what he says here. John 16, verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Jesus says this. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the father is with me. Here in the midst of Jesus telling his disciples, you're all going to be scattered. The prophecy said to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You're all going to leave. I won't be alone. I won't be alone. Go with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. At the end of Paul's life here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 14 through 18. Look at the contrast here. He says, Alexander the coppersmith, 2 Timothy 4 verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Did you catch that? Did I catch that? Alexander the coppersmith, may God repay him for what he's done. And then at my first defense, none of the other brothers came and helped me. May it not be held against them. What's the difference? What's the difference? Why does he say the Lord repay him? But for these people, they say, may it, not, may it not be repaid. Help me out, guys. What's the difference? They were the brothers. God will repay those who are outside of Christ for what they do. I don't need to make that my job. But when it came to the brothers, he was forgiven as God forgave them. Forgave him. Keep reading. You see it even more. He said, may it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. By the way, do you remember who's writing this? Do you understand this is at the very end of his life? 
Do you understand what he's been through and being left for dead and stoned and shipwrecked and all this stuff and beaten so many times? But he says, God's going to safely deliver me into his kingdom. Well, that doesn't look like safely to me. What's your definition of safely, Paul? He says, if he were here, he'd say, you're still looking at it with man's eyes. We don't live for this world. We live for the one to come. And folks... This forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven you. You can't just say, well, I guess God forgave me, I ought to. You don't get it if you think that's what it is. The only way you're going to get to this level is through this understanding of renewing your mind and allowing the truth of who you are in Christ to sink in. Well, go to Philippians chapter 2. Let me tell you two more passages real quick. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Look at how Paul words it here. He said, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look what he says here. He doesn't jump into, hey, don't look only in your own interests, but in the interests of others. The root of it is this. If you have any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if you understand what it means to receive what Christ has done for you, then it's nothing, it's easy for you to pass it on. For too long, we've been told you need to be more like Jesus. You need to try to be like Jesus. You need to try. Like, what would Jesus do? Try to be like him. Folks, you can't. You can't be like Jesus. I don't care how hard you try. But Jesus in you, if you'll let him, will take control if you believe in the same way in which you received him, walk in him. Jesus, I can't forgive this person. My flesh doesn't want to forgive this person. But you have and can. And you've already forgiven me. Give me the grace. I'm going to go forgive this person, and I'm going to trust that you're going to take over. Same way and I walk that aisle believing you're going to give me salvation, I'm going to go walk to this person's house, or I'm going to go over to that person, and I'm going to let it go because you're going to give me the grace. Folks, you just watch what happens. You just watch what happens. Now, let me take you to that last passage in the time we have left that I told you that in and of itself scared the pants off you, but if you allow the Spirit to show you the depth of what's being said here, it'll set you free. Matthew 18. Verses 21 through 35. To be honest with you, for all, a lot of years, I've never fully understood this passage. And I can't say I fully understand it now. But there's a depth to this passage that has come alive as we put this all together. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, look at what Jesus says. He just said, if your brother sins against you, you forgive him. And Peter comes up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I love it. It's just any, anytime anybody preaches, someone wants to know, well, what's the rules? Peter says, hey, if I forgive him seven times, is that pretty good? What does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times seven, some translations say. Therefore, listen to what he says next. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Now, if you don't know what this is, let me tell you how much this was. One talent equaled 20 years wages. All right. Do the math. 
One talent is 20 years wages. How much is 10,000 talents? It's Jesus' way of saying he owed him a bazillion dollars. All right. Seriously, that's what Jesus is saying here. Some guy owed him a gazillion. All right. Well, bazillion, gazillion, they're about the same. A couple of zeros. And since he could not pay, duh, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. By the way, a denarii is one day's wage. So he owed him about a third of a year's wage. He owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, did the same thing he had just done, and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not... You have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in your anger, in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do every to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now you got to stick with me here because we look at that. Doesn't that sound to con seem to contradict everything we just talked about? I mean, he was given forgiveness, and because he didn't forgive, he was thrown into the jail, and he was, you know, he lost his forgiveness in a sense. Didn't you just say, Jim, that if we trust Christ, he'll give us his spirit and we'll be sealed? Yes, look closely what's going on here. Remember the real gospel. The real gospel is not if God's mad at you, and if you ask him to forgive you, he'll forgive you. The real gospel is God has already forgiven the whole world. Not the whole, the whole world's not going to heaven. Remember, God, Colossians chapter 1, God was in Christ reconciling everything through his death on the cross. Forgiveness has already been paid for for the entire world. It has been offered to the whole world. God says to the world, I love you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Salvation has been offered. Salvation is already paid for. God has already forgiven you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, be reconciled to God. There are those who say, oh, I receive your forgiveness. Thank you for my salvation. But in time, it becomes evident that they never really received it. Just because you pray to prayer, folks, doesn't mean you're saved. You want to know a real evidence of whether or not you're saved? Oh, don't say I was baptized at seven. Mm. Is Jesus in you? Are you able to forgive somebody from your heart because you have received his forgiveness? This story at first scared me for all these years until I came to realize that man that said he received the forgiveness of God, he never received it. It was given, but he never received it because if he had received it, he would have been really willing to forgive the person that owed him. And what does Jesus say? If you don't forgive those, your heavenly father won't forgive you. Do we get saved by what we do? No. But what we do gives real evidence of whether or not we're really saved. Folks, there might be some people in this room tonight. They've had an issue with unforgiveness for a long time. I'm not saying you're not saved. But I can tell you right now, you better get it settled because it'll help you know whether or not you're really saved. You forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you. And again, this is way deeper than, oh, I guess God forgive me. I ought to forgive you. No, 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 no. 
if you really understand what God did for you, it'd be nothing for you to just forgive somebody else. It's a natural outflow. We've put away all falsehood. We're new creations. We're learning what it means to live according to the spirit of God and him be in control. And you can't do it. But one of the greatest ways you can know that the spirit of God is within you is you walk in obedience and you forgive others and you get bless others. You give grace and you watch how God manifests his presence in you and you'll know you're his. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you for this chance to come and study your word. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would take these words and the truth of your scripture and have them just take root in our hearts. And Lord, if there's anybody here tonight or even those that's listening on, on, online right now, Lord, that, that need to get the issue settled with you. Lord, one of the ways you've shown us that we can know whether or not you're really in us is whether or not we've ever seen evidence of your spirit. And one of these greatest areas is in the area of forgiveness. Lord, there's just no way your word teaches very clearly that we who have received your forgiveness could ever say, well, I'm not going to forgive that person. I will have nothing to do with that person. Your scripture clearly says, as far as it lies with us, live at peace with everyone. We're to go to our brother who has an issue with us and we need to go to them just for re reconciliation. If they choose not to, that's on them. But Lord, we can never sit back and say, oh, well, as soon as they come and ask for forgiveness, I'll forgive them. Lord, you were on the cross calling out, Lord, they, they're not asking for it, but I want you to forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, Show us tonight whether or not there's an issue in our hearts and give evidence of your spirit within us as we walk in obedience and we reconcile. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.